invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we were just beginning to study 1 Peter last spring, and we took a break during the summer to look at the, um, the Psalms, and so we're going to be picking up 1 Peter again. This morning, if you were here, we uh, looked at Luke chapter 11, where Jesus, uh, the title of our message was, How Not to Be Holy, as Jesus exposes a Pharisee and how offensive the Pharisee's, Christ, his religion was. Uh, to God, and uh, some of the, I had some comments after the, the sermon, just saying, "Okay, we understood that, and we're convicted by that." But now what? Um, we all, uh, you know, sense that we're we have some hypocrisy. But where do we go from here? What is what does true holiness look like, and how do we grow in it? And um, well, as I said this morning, uh, we sort of two sides of the coin today. This morning was how not to be holy. Tonight we're going to begin looking at what Christian holiness actually looks like. And so 1 Peter chapter 1, I would like to begin reading at verse 1, uh, so we uh, just remind ourselves again of uh, the flow of the letter, and we're going to read through verse 21 of chapter 1, so let's give our attention to God's Word tonight. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's ask the Lord to bless the word tonight. Father, thank you so much for the Apostle Peter. Thank you for a man that we can identify with, and yet a man who was wonderfully and magnificently transformed by the power of God. A man who was set free from his pride, his self-reliance, humbled by his sin, made awake and aware of the grace of God for sinners and became such a useful leader in the church and who now uh, writes to us, the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his words. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that inspired them. And we ask that that spirit now would illuminate our hearts and minds to receive them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm excited to pick up 1 Peter uh, because I believe 1 Peter is a magnificently relevant book for our times. Uh, Peter is writing to people who were a minority group for sure. Uh, 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 he's writing to people who um, have this, this, this amazing truth about them. They are on the one hand the elect of God, as you saw in the first part uh, of his introduction, known before the foundation of the world, and yet in the world they're seen as nothing. They're, they're exiles, they're foreigners. They don't have any status. They don't have any position. They don't have rights in that sense. And so here you have this strange juxtaposition of the, the glory and the honor that belongs to the church because of God's work in them and, and his purposes for them, and yet in the world they're despised, and in the world they suffer. And Peter does not um, apologize for that. He, he embraces the church's alien status. He, he delights in it, and the reason he delights in it is because Christians are aliens in this world precisely because they're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in this world now, as, as we live as foreigners and aliens, we have a mission. And Peter is writing to this New Testament church, this early congregation, to remind them of their mission. Chapter 2, verse 9 really captures it. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear that message today. We need to be reminded of our identity. We're not what the world says we are. We're not just this strange little religious group that has these, these strange and offensive doctrines. Uh, we're not just sort of pie-in-the-sky people hoping that someday in the future things will get better. Uh, we, we, our identity is determined, defined by the gospel itself, by what God has done for us in Christ. And yet we also have a calling in this world to declare and proclaim the excellencies of God. And as we're going to go through the letter, Peter's letter, we're going to see that for Peter, two things are essential to that calling. And the two things are, are suffering... And holiness. Those are the themes that are woven throughout the letter. Suffering for Christ's sake and living for Christ's sake. And we're going to take our time going through these verses, particularly the next uh, 10 verses or so. Uh, I want to just take our time. We're not in a hurry uh, because there's some confusion in the church today regarding the nature and necessity of 
both of these things, frankly, the, 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 the place of suffering, but also the nature and the and necessity of, for Christian holiness. Kevin Young, in uh, his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, uh, just writes, there's a gap between, in many Christians' lives between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. And he says it must not be. It is not pietism or fundamentalism to talk about holiness. It's Christianity. But we're seeing there's a, there's a discussion taking place um, that's very current today about the nature and necessity of, of holiness. Some folks confuse holiness with external morality. We talked about that this morning in the Pharisee. People think you just go through the motions. That's what it must be. But there seems to be an increasing uneasiness about the concept of holiness and the command to be holy. There's a Uh, For instance, a recent, very popular, and in many ways, excellent book uh, by Barbara Duguid. Some of you have read it, entitled Extravagant Grace. And she's wrestling with, what is the the role of sin? Does God have a purpose, even, for sin in a believer's life? If, If God ordains everything that comes to pass, which he certainly does, what is his purpose for ordaining that we're not just immediately sanctified? Why would God leave remaining sin in your life? And she's, uh, she's uh, taking, um, spinning off from John Newton, a great Puritan, who um, really developed a theology of the sovereignty of God in the context of, uh, in, in, in the midst of the reality of, of Christians who sin, and we all do. And, so, and she offers some wonderful counsel, again, from, from Newton there. But she suggests that holiness is maybe not really what God is after in the believer's life. She writes, if the sovereign God's primary goal in sanctifying believers is simply to make us more holy, it is hard to explain why most of us only make small beginnings on the road to holiness in this life. And of course, that's that's a tensely personal struggle for every child of God. If he really wants me to be holy, which it seems like he does, then then why doesn't he engage his sovereign power and and make it happen? Why does he leave us to struggle with remaining sin? I mean, he he could just change us. He's sovereign. And a lot of Christians struggle mightily with this. I remember being a young man and just wondering, Lord, if if you want me to be pure and holy, why don't you just do what you did to the blind man, right? Jesus says, see have your eyes open, stand, walk, and they did. So why don't you do that for, why doesn't God do that for believers? And there's a, there's, um, there's many answers to that question that are helpful, actually. I mean, Duguid and Newton point out that um, God does have a sovereign purpose in, in uh, not just removing all of our sin. He's, he is striving to make us uh, love Jesus and learn to depend on Jesus and trust in grace. He's humbling us. Uh, he's making us learn that, that uh, uh, all the strength and the power is his and that it's ultimately not really about us. It's, a, it's about him. Uh, so God has many purposes in mind. And we'll, as we go through this, we'll maybe look at some of those. But again, Dugan suggests that maybe God's desire isn't really to make us holy in this life after all. She says, what if growing in grace is more about humility and dependence and exalting Christ than it is about defeating sin? And that becomes the thesis of the book. What if growing in grace is more about humility, dependence, and exalting Christ than it is about defeating sin? As we go through this, uh, these next 
verses over the next weeks, I would love just to engage that thought. And, uh, and others who've been, there's a lot of conversation going on about this right now. In fact, Kevin DeYoung's uh, Magnify Conference, which is uh, November 20 and 21, I believe, in East Lansing, is exactly on the topic of sanctification. I think it's 10 bucks. Uh, Ligon Duncan's going to be there, and I uh, highly recommend it uh, to you. But um, let's um, just enter the discussion with the questions... What exactly is this thing called Christian holiness? We know what it's not. We saw that this morning. But what is Christian holiness? And is it necessary? Is it possible even? And if so, how is it attained? And what is it for? What does it look like? What is it going to feel like? What is this thing that we call Christian holiness? And tonight we're going to start by just looking at verse 13, frankly. 13, maybe 14. Uh, No, just 13. That's what we're looking at tonight. So it's going to, we're going to take our time. I said we were going to. But it's a, it's a fantastic truth that we need to get firm if we're going to understand this, the, the tremendous difference between holiness, which is keeping the, observing the rules, and uh, holiness, which really is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that happens when we're abiding in the grace of God. So I'd like to start by looking at the power of true holiness. And we're going to look at this word, therefore, because it's a, it's a critical word. Verse 13 starts with, therefore. Have you noticed that when New Testament writers move to talk about Christian living, they, they, so often they start with a therefore. Therefore, since you have been raised with Christ. Therefore, Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why do they put the therefore there? Because they all realize that you cannot talk about Christian holiness unless you refer to, its, uh, to what comes in front of it. And, and unless you refer to what first God has done. You can't talk about what Christians are supposed to do until you've really pounded out the gospel. There is always a something that lies ahead of before uh, Christian holiness and and on which Christian holiness is founded. The engine of sanctification is all that God has done for us, all that he's promised to do for us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not fighting this battle in isolation. It's not just, uh, you know, God has done his thing, and now we draw a line there, and now, Christian, it's time for you to get busy. That's so often where we go wrong. A litmus test of true holiness, you see, so often is the question of motivation. What motivates it? What is the goal that it is pursuing? What is the hope that fuels it? If If you think about the Pharisee this morning, you ask those questions. What what is motivating you to tithe even the, the, the spices? What's motivating you to keep these thousands of rules? Why do you do that? Whether he knows it or not, what's motivating him is pride. He believes that he can keep the law of God, and he loves to keep the law of God. He, he likes to be recognized for keeping the law of God. Jesus nailed them on it. You like to sit up in the, in, the, in the primary seats in the synagogue. You love to be recognized in the marketplace. That's what's driving it. The goal is to be recognized. And the hope that is fueling it is that at the end of their life, they can stand before God and receive their reward. They've kept the law, and the Bible promises wonderful things to those who keep the law. 
And so they expect to be at the front of the line and receive what they've earned. Well, that's not what drives Christian holiness. Christian holiness is driven by profoundly different things. I mean, it's as different as night and day. I was just trying to think of an example. I just read an article this week, and so that's where this illustration comes from. Uh, the new Camaro SS is out, 2016 version. Um, it's awesome. It, and I won't go into all the details, but a lot of carbon fiber in, in the frame and structure. And uh, the engine, uh, there's different levels. You get a 2.0, which I can't imagine why you'd put a 2.0 in a Camaro S. But the SS has the 6.2 V8. It's 455 horsepower. And um, it's, it's just a magnificent machine. Now, I want you to imagine a friend of yours, uh, you go over to their house, and he says, hey, I, I just got the new SS. It's in the garage. Let's go look at it. Man, I would be there. I think uh, many of you guys would, too. You'd, I want to see this thing. And you walk in the garage, and there it is. Beautiful styling, incredible interior. Uh, you ask him to pop the hood, and so he does. And when he lifts the hood, you, there's nothing in there. Just blank space. And you realize, you start looking at this thing, it, it's a display model. There's, this isn't a real SS. It's, half the things don't work on it. It's just meant to sit in the showroom and, and look nice. And, you, you know, I don't know. If, I think I'd, most guys would be a little, I thought you were going to show me an SS. This is not an SS. It's not even a real car. It's a charade. It's, a, it's just a facade. It's not the real thing. It can't do anything. There's no power to it. Well, that's the difference between religious holiness and Christian holiness. You see, religious holiness, there's nothing under the hood. It's just appearance. And once you get under the hood, there's just, it, it's just ugly stuff. Jesus says you're full of greed and wickedness. But there's no power there. There's nothing beautiful there. There's nothing that moves it and drives it. Well, Peter, you see, believes that. A Christian has all the parts. A Christian has been given by God an engine. And the engine is the gospel. We've been called, and for Peter, a call is the divine effectual call of God. Called to be holy. Called for obedience to Jesus Christ, verse 2 and 3. In the sanctification of the Spirit. So he says in verse 14, then as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions in your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Now that is probably not your favorite verse in the Bible. I don't know if it's anybody's favorite verse in the Bible. It sounds intimidating. It sounds like an utterly unrealistic thing to say. Be holy as the Lord is holy. Some would suggest it's even unhelpful. It just discourages people who are struggling. So I think it's important as we start this discussion to acknowledge there's something within us that feels a bit uneasy about that language. I mean, do we feel comfortable counseling each other that way? If, if someone comes to you and they're struggling with a besetting sin, do we feel comfortable saying, well, you, well, you remember what Peter says, be holy as the Lord is holy, See, we, we, we chuckle. It's just not what we would say. But friends, Peter isn't smiling. 
at least not that way. There is absolutely nothing in Peter's words that would suggest he's winking when he's writing them. He's not going, you know, yeah, we, we, we really, I mean, we, we can't really do that. But the spirit is sort of, you know, seems to be driving me. He's not doing that. There is a startling, beautiful confidence in his words. In fact, he writes as though this were common knowledge, as though this were the universally accepted fact that the conscious effort and the confident expectation of every believer is holiness. Now, another trick that we could play here is to say, well, what he's talking about here is definitive sanctification, not progressive sanctification. He could be talking here about the, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, whereby we are already holy. Praise God, it's true. I'm so thankful for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, that before the throne of God, we are righteous. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about progressive sanctification. He's talking about the righteousness that God works within us. So why is he so confident when he writes about people like you and me and calls us to holiness? And the the answer is, you see, because Peter knows what's under the hood. He knows that Christian holiness is driven by the most amazing, powerful thing in the world. It's driven by the gospel. It's motivated by gospel realities. And so as Peter now is moving in his letter to address his, his audience, he lists four gospel realities that empower Christian holiness. We'll just look at the first one tonight, which is the believer's hope, verse 13. But in our text, we read, uh, Peter refers to the character of God, verses 14 through 16. He speaks of the fatherhood of God, verse 17. And he speaks of the blood that has ransomed us, the blood of Christ, 18 through 21. Those are the gospel realities that drive the real thing. And so let's start tonight just by looking at then the root of true holiness, which is hope. Therefore, he writes, preparing your minds for action and and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's one command here and then several qualifiers. There's one main verb. It's in the imperative, which is the the tense of a command. And the, the, the verb is set your hope. It's not a word that we use very often, though we are familiar with its sense. If you would think of an engaged couple, uh, they've set their hopes on the coming wedding day. To set your hope is just to fix your heart and mind on something that you're confident is going to happen. Uh, An engaged couple are not hoping a wedding day happens. They're convinced it's going to happen. They're daily making plans for that event and for the life to follow. So they're not dating around. You see, it's, it's impacting how they live. They're not acting like single people, even though they still are single people. Why don't they, why do they act so strangely? And the answer is, you can see, a, a past event has taken place She said yes. He asked and she said yes. So an event has happened in the past that assures something is going to happen in the future and that determines how they're going to live in the present. That's Christian hope. Something's happened in the past that assures something is going to happen in the future and so it affects how we live in the present. That's what Peter's talking about. Biblical hope, you see, is this 
this rock-solid conviction about what is yet to come. It is, it, and hope, it's, it's the product of true faith. John MacArthur explains the relationship between faith and hope like this. He says, faith believes what God has said. It accepts what God has done. Hope believes what God has promised to do. So hope is faith laying hold of the future. Faith accepts all that God has said and done. Hope expects all that God has promised to do. In the Bible, one of the great examples of this is Abraham himself, where in Romans chapter 4, we're told that in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And so he, he, he hoped against hope. He had a conviction, even though there were no earthly reasons for the conviction. His body was beyond producing progeny. His wife's womb was dead, had always been dead. But the Bible says he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Unbelief did not make him waver concerning the promise of God, but he, gave, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God had made a promise in the past that Abraham believed assured a certain future, and so he lived by faith and hope then in the present. Not perfectly, he stumbles, but his obedience is the obedience saturated with faith in what God has said and hope in what God has promised. And the Christian, you see, stands in that same position. And Peter points us to the past event. It's the call of God, but more specifically, it's the resurrection of the Son of God. Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Something has happened in the past that assures a future outcome, and we're to live in the present then with that conviction. So the question then for you tonight and for me is, do you believe the resurrection happened? Do you really believe what the Gospels tell us, that Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified, dead, and buried? And do you believe that on the third day, he rose again from the dead by the power of God according to the scriptures. Do you believe the resurrection happened? Because if you believe the resurrection happened, the second question then would be, do you understand what it means? I mean, the, do you understand what it means for you? That Jesus was raised to life, the Bible says, for your justification. That because Jesus was raised to life, the Father has put his stamp of approval on his work, but it's evidence that the work was effective, that the curse of sin is broken, the power of death is destroyed. So death is no longer any power over those who belong to Jesus, who've been united to Jesus in faith. What it means for you, the resurrection for you, means that you don't ever have to be afraid of anything ever again. Who shall separate you from the love of God? 
in Jesus Christ, the resurrected son. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Even if you're as sheep to be slaughtered, put to death all the day long, shall anything separate you from God? No. The resurrection assures that you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. The resurrection means that your future is absolutely fixed. It can't be changed. The God who called you before the foundation of the world, who gave you to Jesus in time, who brought you to life and gave you faith in Jesus Christ, who made you, caused you to be born again to a living hope, he will carry out what he has begun. He will finish what he started. That's what the resurrection means for you. It's what it means for me. We cannot lose. It's... For us to lose means that Jesus did not raise from the dead. He's still in the tomb. The two things cannot be true. A child of God cannot be lost and Jesus Christ be raised from the dead. Peter wants us to lay hold of that. He wants us to lay hold of the reality of the gospel. And so he says, set your hope fully. One commentator interprets it, set your hope to the hilt. You're all in. No hedging your bets. No uh, having some hope over here and some hope over here. This is just completely unalterably all in. No going back. And you see there's, a, there's an appropriateness, appropriateness to that. If, if you think about the, the, the girl that got engaged... There'd be something very inappropriate about this young bride-to-be uh, planning a wedding, but at the same time also planning a career abroad as a single girl, just in case the wedding didn't work out, uh, or just in case maybe she changed her mind. You see, the fiancé would have every right to protest, are you in or out? Where's your hope? What are you expecting? What are you looking to? You see, many Christians... We just struggle right here because we have divided hopes. We, we believe in heaven, but if, if you looked at our schedules, if you looked at the things that we worry about, if you looked at the things that we're spending money on and spending time on, you'd get the sense that the Christians so often believe that their hope for happiness is found in the, the, the stuff of this life. So in their family and their marriage, and their health, and their career, and their reputation. Those are the things people worry about. If they pray, those are the things they pray about. And, and those are good gifts that God gives. But Peter says, what are you doing? Are you, are you, do you understand what's happened to you? Do, do, you, do you get the resurrection? Do you understand that, that this life is passing? You're, you're just a pilgrim here. You're an exile here. And that you don't, you don't get your life, in a sense, right here. Put your hope to the hilt on one thing. What is that one thing? Well, he tells us, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. On the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and this is... It's just so beautiful what Peter writes here. Peter gets grace, don't you think? 
He went out and wept bitterly after he called curses down on his head if he knew anything about that man from Nazareth. And Jesus heard it, Jesus looked at him, and the rooster crowed. And Peter was undone. He had nothing to bring to Jesus that was useful. But now he was finally, you see, able to be useful to the king because Peter finally was ready to understand grace. And that's the word that Peter uses here. Set your hope not on the, all the things that we get in heaven. Um, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you. You see, at the end of human history, at the end of your life, you receive grace. When you, when you come to the gates of eternity, and you're going to come there, if you are a Christian, what you will meet there is grace brought to you. And that's going to, if we understand that, that's going to transform the way we think about holiness. Remember, what is the Pharisee? What's driving him? What's driving him is the, the conviction that he must earn what now what he will gain then. And his obedience is his working to get the reward of that last day. Well, that, that can only yield uh, pride or despair. If you're going to make the law your way of gaining the merits of, of eternity, you're going to be proud because you think you're doing it, or you're going to be despairing because you're honest enough to admit you're an absolute failure. But Christian holiness is motivated by grace. You see, a Christian lives his life in the confidence that at the end of it, I get grace. That I don't merit anything at the end of my life. What I receive at the end when I stand before Jesus, I receive grace. And so my holiness now, my life now is not driven by, by um, fear of the law. It's not driven by pride. It's not driven by anything except by love for Jesus who, who gave his life for me. And gratitude and confidence and, and a desire somehow to honor Jesus. You will fight so much more tenaciously against sin when you realize this is not about what you're meriting. This is about magnifying Jesus. If you love him, you're going go to go to war against the devil. So Paul just, Peter wants us to know. There's going to be grace for you, believer. And you're the, you're the recipient of amazing grace now, isn't it true, right? The grace of sins forgiven, the grace of being declared just before the throne room of God, the grace of prayers answered, the grace of God's comfort, the grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the grace of imputed righteousness, the grace of, of loving believers uh, surrounding us and all the gifts God's give to, God gives to us. But it, that's, that's just the beginning. It's a foretaste. There's so much more yet to come, and Peter wants us to get it in our mind. That, that the gift of grace... And that we're going to be raised from the dead with a new body and a perfected soul, as Paul writes about so eloquently in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, because this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortality must be clothed with immortality. We're going to put off, Paul, uh, Paul writes, this old tent. 
And we're going to be given a new body and given a purified soul. And then we're going to see Jesus. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So Peter writes, set your hope to the hilt on that, on seeing Jesus and being made eternally like him. Make that your one hope. That's what it's about. That's what you're pursuing. That's what you're convinced of. Because John continues in verse 3, that hope purifies. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hope has purifying power. Hope frees you. Isn't it true that so many of our sins are caused by things that we're grasping for? Things that we want as we try to seek our life here and now. We, we're convinced we need this and we want that. And so James writes, why do you, you, you covet you adulterous people and you can't have, so you kill and you, you quarrel. What causes these fights? It's all this, these passions within you. You want, you want, you want. You see, that, that, that disappears when you set your hope. It doesn't mean you don't desire things and, you, and we can pray for things, but your hope isn't set there. Set your hope fully, all the way to the grace to be given you on that last day. The reality is, friends, we just don't, we don't think about it enough. You know, if, if Jesus were to show up, you know, next Saturday, are you okay with that? Some of you aren't sure because you don't know if you're ready. Some of you are thinking, oh, we had a family get-together planned next Saturday. <laughs> Do you know who Michigan's playing next Saturday? This is where we live. This is where we live. And Peter says, that, that's got to that's change. It's got to change. We're never going to experience the power of true holiness if we don't have the hope that drives it. The hope that, that, that moves us to purify our, ourselves because Jesus is pure. So how do we go about this? Just to start wrapping up. Two things Peter points to. Two participles here. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. The first is literally gird up the loins of your mind. Remember in the old days, the men would wear these long flowing robes, and, uh, and when they had to work or they had to run, they would wrap those, pull those robes up and, and wrap it up sort of like a towel, stick it in the belt, and now their legs are free to move. And, and, and Paul, uh, Peter is saying, that's what you need to do mentally. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be like the Israelites of the Passover. That's how they ate the Passover. Their, their robes were gathered up. Their staff was in their hand. They were participating in the meal, but they were ready to go. And Peter says, that's how we live. It's living in this world, engaged in this world, but your staff is in your hand. Your loins are gird, and you're ready to go. You're ready to move at a moment's notice. Because your mind is set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so we walk in this life with a pilgrim mentality. We're not home yet, but we're going there. And God has promised to get us there. 
And being sober-minded then, it just means be awake to the reality of things. So we're not walking in a spiritual fog and wondering uh, what is real and what is fake or, or spending our time on what's, what's passing instead of treasuring what is eternal. Peter writes, for chapter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So you see, friends, if we have our hope fixed on what the grace to be given to us when Jesus Christ appears. And he talks a little bit more about that in, earlier on in the chapter here, about the glory and the honor that we will receive. Gifts of grace. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to be to receive glory and honor as those who belong to Jesus, where, where angels will be tempted to worship. It's, it's an astonishing thing. So, so let's put that into practice. And, and if we're going to put this into practice, we're going to have such a looser hold, won't we, on things that are passing away? I mean, we'll, we'll enjoy our marriage, but, but there's going to be so much less of husband and wife seeking their life in it and so much more willingness to give their life in it. And, you, and your children aren't your, aren't your life. Young couples, it's such a joy to see all the kids here. And, and we, um, we love our kids, but they're not your life. They, 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 they grow up and they leave you. Um, and that's good, Right? They do. Tim Keller says every family, right, is in the process of breaking up and disintegrating. It's very encouraging. <clears throat> there are, listen, there are, there, are, there are folks in West Michigan who abhor that thought. Their children are their life. No, it's not. They're not. And your grandchildren aren't either. Jesus is your life. Your reputation isn't your life. Your comfort isn't your life. Think about whatever you're anxious about right now, whatever you worry about right now, whatever you're pursuing right now, particularly if you know that you're in sin doing it. Whatever it is that drives your impatience and your anger, whatever it is you're lusting for, it's a false hope. It's not your life. Let it go. Let it go. Set your hope fully on this one thing, the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And as you do, you are going to experience the joy of your salvation, the peace that God has promised to those whose hope is in him. You are beginning to more and more understand the true nature of things. And you're going to have this beautiful confidence and this increasing holiness because your heart and your mind is set on the grace that you've already received and the grace you're going to receive when Christ comes again. You're convinced of it. That will radically transform your life. Let me wrap with this. I just got to, um, this Wednesday, we're going to be praying for the persecuted church. I, I saw a, a news article this week. Um, August 7, 11 uh, indigenous Christian workers near Aleppo, Syria, uh, had the option to leave the area because ISIS was coming close. Uh, but they decided to stay. The leader um, begged them to leave. He says, I gave them the freedom to choose but they stayed because they believed they were called to share Christ with those caught in the crossfire. Every time we talked to them, the director said they were always saying, we want to stay here. This is what God has told us to do. This is what we want to do. They wanted to stay and share the gospel. And uh, on August 7, the ISIS militants came into the village and asked 
uh, gathered these 11 people up and asked them if they had renounced Islam for Christianity if they had, because they were, they were um, Syrians. And they said, yes, they had renounced Islam for Christianity. The rebels asked them if they wanted to return to Islam. The Christians said they would never renounce Christ. The 41-year-old team leader, his young son, and two ministry members in their 20s were questioned. And um, the young, the, the, this man's boy was uh, two months away from his 13th birthday. All were badly brutalized and then crucified, left on the crosses for two days. Uh, they gathered six other of the men and two women and uh, beat them and then beheaded them and then crucified them. The villagers said that they, they were praying in the name of Jesus. Some were praying the Lord's Prayer. Um, others said some of them lifted their heads and commended their spirits to Jesus. One of the women looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said, Jesus. How do you do that when you could have left? Well, you do that because, you see, you got your hope set on one thing. Just one thing. The grace that you will receive when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friends, suffering might well be on the way for the Christian church. And there is no rule book that will be sufficient for you and no external holiness that will be able to keep you when that takes place. And we fight these little wars every day, of course. The devil is after us every day to get us to renounce Christ. The one thing that will give you the power and the peace to face the devil's attacks now and whatever threats come in the future is, where's your hope? Where's your hope? Where is it really? Is it set on the grace to be yours when Jesus Christ comes again? May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, we are talking about eternal things. In the middle of a passing world, we have mortal bodies that one day will, will die, but we have souls that must live forever, either in the glory of heaven or the horror of hell. And, oh God, I pray that you would be gracious to us, give us eyes to see, what is real, what is necessary, what is life-giving. Father, we confess our sin, the sin of seeking our life in the things of this world. We confess our sin of not longing for the grace to be revealed when Christ comes again, the grace that will be given to us Forgive us, Lord. It was what Jesus gave his life to give to us, and yet we so often treat it as a small thing, an undesirable thing. It is a great sin, and we, we confess it before you as sin and beg your forgiveness and ask you to change our hearts. Father, I thank you that it is your desire to use your word to convict us of sin, but also to build us up and to show us a better way to lead us in paths of everlasting life. And Father, I pray that your word tonight would have begun that conversation in our own heart. Where is our hope? Give us the grace then to set it on grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.